0: Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark, chapter 1. Continuing our series through Mark. And we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. We have a Bible there. They're among the chairs here. If you didn't bring one. Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. This is God's Word. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have opened up your word to us, that you've shown us um, a credible account of who you are and what you've done to save us from our sin. Father, we thank you so much for this word. pray that you would bless the reading and teaching of it pray that you would uh, do a work in us all father convict us challenge us help us to confess and repent and be comforted by the gospel this morning in jesus name amen well ruth tucker has written a recent book called black and white bible black and blue wife and while i don't agree with all her theological uh, convictions i think your story needs to be told she recounts the terrifying story of living in an abusive marriage with her former husband. And he was also a pastor. Wow. She tells the story of one of these many abusive encounters she had with her husband in the years that she lived with him and her and her one son. She writes it was a cold west Michigan evening in March. Spring quarter at Trinity had begun a week earlier. She was a professor. I recognized my husband's mood before we'd even sat down for the evening meal. And when we finished eating, I tidied up the kitchen, took my books and notes, and went upstairs while he watched his usual TV programs, and Carlton did homework nearby, listening in as he typically did. And after an hour or so, I heard my husband's footsteps on the steps. I stiffened, dreading the worst. He entered our bedroom where I was hunkered down and then seemingly out of the blue, Not so much as a segue into the topic, he demanded to know my interpretation of a particular biblical passage that related to women. And I explained that I was very busy in course preparation and did not wish to discuss the matter further, particularly because I knew it would create problems. But he proceeded to give me his interpretation of the passage, and when I remained silent and refused to agree with him, He became irate and began very loudly to threaten me and exclaim that he would not let me fly to O'Hare in the morning. He yanked me from where I was sitting. My papers flying in every direction. And she continues to uh, recount this evening, um, scary evening. Her son ended up coming up to try to intervene. He even got a, a Swiss Army knife to try and protect his mom. The dad ended up throwing the son down on the ground, and thankfully, that's where it ended. When I say the word authority, what comes to your mind? My guess is that most people today don't have positive um, connotations of that word, authority. Most likely you've seen authority abused, misused, used for selfish purposes. Authority in the family, authority in the government, authority in the church, authority in this family. It can all go very wrong. It can go very wrong quickly. And and what's and what's it like to be on the receiving end of that kind of a thing? It's terrifying, right? It's like being a slave. It's like being voiceless. It's a terrible feeling. It's it's not good. It's it's not accidental that the Apostle Paul writes that our ultimate spiritual battle against Satan is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. The evil one Satan wants nothing more than to enslave people to his to his evil authority. Now I want to point out to you that this text in Mark is all about authority, but a different a different kind of authority. It's not a coercive, abusive, prideful, self-aggrandizing kind of authority and power, but a strong, gracious, loving kind of authority. See, we've already read about Jesus' baptism. And with His baptism, Jesus has already been shown to be the divine Son of God. Right? The voice from heaven came down and said, This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. And what that means is, Mark is writing, is that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to Him. It's been entrusted to Him. And what I want us to take away from this text this morning is that because Jesus' authority is for our good, we can willingly follow him and entrust all things to him. Because Jesus' authority is for our good, we can entrust all things to him and follow him. So I'm going to break up the talk in two major points. Who is Jesus, a man of authority, and who are we? Called to follow him. Point one, who is Jesus, a man with authority? And two, we're gonna look at who are we, those called to follow him. So, first, who is Jesus? That's Mark's main burden in this whole book, is, is he's unpacking who is Jesus? That's the question he's answering through the first half of Mark's gospel. Well, our scene takes place on the shores of the Sea of Galilee beautiful scene. There we see Jesus walking along the seashore the broken black pebble beach under his feet it's a picturesque lake most said, some 7 miles wide by 13 miles long. It's nearly 700 feet below sea level the sea is confined by a bank of mountains on the east side and uh, lower slopes on the west the historian Josephus extols the Sea of Galilee for its pure sweet water and many species of fish its fertile soil and pleasing climate that supplies the fruit and produce ten months of the year sounds like San Diego actually can you picture the scene this long awaited Messiah beginning his public ministry he's on the cusp of calling his very first disciples Jesus is on the verge of calling the New Testament church into existence pretty amazing but I think the way Mark tells it is kind of strange he tells the story in a very peculiar way and I think we're inclined to read this story in one of two ways I think either we gloss over it as a plain, boring kind of story oh he calls his disciples and they follow him that's just about it I mean there's nothing spectacular here right? no demons are cast out Um, no people are healed Or we can examine every detail of this story and see the great truths that Mark is showing us. And there are huge implications from from these truths. And I want us to take that second road. Let's look at the details of this story. I think there's intention behind how Mark tells this story. If you're like me, you're probably wondering why in the world these disciples left their jobs to follow Jesus almost immediately. The way he tells it is interesting. It doesn't even look like they pause to think. They just follow him. Now kids, this isn't simply a story about immediately following strangers if they tell you to follow them. That's not what we're trying to to tell you. That's not what's going on here. I think the immediate response of the disciples is to highlight the fact that Jesus is a figure greater than the prophets of old. He's a figure more than the kings of old. He's, he's better than Elijah. He's better than Moses. Even King David. He's better than King David. Mark is highlighting the fact that Jesus has all authority to call people to himself. To begin his ministry as the divine son. In short, this Jesus, Mark is saying, is, is the long-awaited Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah. And one way we know this is how Mark uses Isaiah 40 when he begins his his gospel. Quoting from Isaiah 40 was huge because Isaiah 40 is the beginning of the servant songs, pointing to the Messiah. 40 to about uh, 55 in Isaiah is all about the servant to come, and I, and and it's been known as the introduction to these servant songs. And notice one word that Mark uses in quoting Isaiah, as well as in Jesus' temptation. And that is wilderness. Wilderness. What did wilderness kind of bring up in the minds of the Israelites? Well, it was a place of desolation. A place of testing. A place of uh, probation. And it was pointing back to their time in the wilderness after Sinai, and before they went into the promised land, right? There's 40 years they spent there. It's not a coincidence that Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness before, after his baptism. But since the prophecy of Isaiah, wilderness has a new meaning. It's been, it's been given a new meaning, and it's not just testing, but expectation. <laughs> if you go back today and you were to read Isaiah 40 through 55 or so, that the wilderness has this idea now for the Israelites of expectation, of waiting. There will be rivers in the wilderness, Isaiah says. Talking about this new life that's going come, to come out of the wilderness. Mark is saying, that's Jesus. This is Jesus. So the original, original audience has this in mind. Well, how else do we know that this is about authority? That, that Mark is trying to show the authority of Jesus. Why do they follow him so immediately? You look at verses 17 and 18, that's what we see. He calls, they follow. It reminds me of what we see throughout the whole Bible. God speaks and things happen. There are some stark similarities to how Jesus' interaction with the disciples compares with how God has acted throughout history. Go with me all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1 you don't have to turn there, but in your mind, God said, He said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. He speaks, things happen. He speaks, things happen. Out of nothing, God created all things by His word. By the authority vested in His creator status, He speaks, it happens. That's that's what we see. I think that's what Mark is pointing us to. He Tells them to follow, and they follow. Mark's intentionally identifying Jesus as the creator of the universe. But also think about when God called Abraham. How did he say it? He said, go from your country, Abraham, and I will make you become a great nation. Very similar to this idea of the the way Jesus says, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men that close identification with with Jesus and and the covenant God of Israel. And just think of the two words that Jesus uses. Follow me. No prophet, no king ever said that in those same words. Rabbis and even prophets of old were not accustomed to speaking this way, calling their own disciples. Usually disciples sought after rabbis, not the other way around. People in the Old Testament, leaders, Moses they were more likely to say, follow God and his statutes and his laws, not simply follow me. And if you read, we're we're going to continue to teach through Mark. Uh, Mike's going to continue to preach through Mark. And, And what this section is, it's opening up this section of Jesus' authority. It's a string of stories that emphasize Jesus' divine authority over all things. We'll see his authority over demons. We'll see his authority over sicknesses. We'll see it over infirmities. But how do we know that that Jesus' authority is good? How do we know that Jesus' authority is good? It was John Calvin that once said, until people are persuaded that God is the fountain of all our good, they will never devote themselves wholly to truly and sincerely to him See, it's not enough to, to think that Jesus should be obeyed we must believe that his authority comes from a good place so how do we know that Jesus' authority is good if we're to follow him well I think it's right in verse 17 verse 17 Jesus said to them follow me and I will make you become fishers of men I think it's in that phrase fishers of men that we see that Jesus' authority is good. What did, what did Jesus mean by that? What was he saying? They were obviously fishing for fish, but he, he changes the analogy. He uses what they were doing and puts it into his own authority for his own kingdom usage. He's recruiting fishers of men. Later in Mark, Jesus is asked why he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners, why he eats with them. And Jesus responds, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' whole mission, the whole reason Jesus had authority to come down on earth was to save sinners, was to save you and me, for us to have faith in him and to be saved. He's looking out for our good. He's looking out for our benefit. That's what, That's ultimately how we know that Jesus' authority is good. because he, he came to save. He came to save us. His mission was to save sinners from the wrath of God. This is a good mission. We must agree that this is a good mission. So, we've looked at who is Jesus. But now, who are we? I think this will... This will open up more of of what his authority is like when we understand who we are as the called of God. We're called to follow him. You and I are called to follow Jesus by his authority. Let's think about the implications of, of this scene for the church in general. Jesus is calling the church into existence, he's calling the very first disciples his very first disciples. And I think that's important because the church is the fellowship of the called. So we are the called. You and I are the called. We didn't choose ourselves, but God chose us. And the church, this church, is made up of people that you didn't choose. But God chose. Right? I didn't choose you. God chose you. And therefore, we didn't choose out we didn't choose the people that we're going to hang out with for eternity either. So that has major implications for how we strive to live with one another, to love one another, to enjoy one another's company. If you can't hang out with people in church, those who you're bonded to in Jesus Christ, you've really got to think about whether or not you're ultimately connected to the head of the body, and that is Jesus. See, two people in the church, even if they don't like each other, even if we struggle against each other, com- from completely different backgrounds, have nothing alike, you actually have more in common with that brother or sister because of Christ than two people of the same family where one's a believer and one's not a believer. You actually have more in common with each other. And you know what's important to, to remember from the scene as well is that these disciples are ordinary people. You're an ordinary person. I'm an ordinary person but we're called to extraordinary purposes, to do extraordinary things. And so, I think what this text is telling us to, to do is do ordinary things for extraordinary purposes. And 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, this is chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord Jesus calls ordinary folks Jesus calls ordinary folks all kinds of people make up the church I mean think about it, Jesus is starting a kingdom, a real kingdom would you have gone to two fishermen, if you were Jesus? Why didn't he go to the Roman Emperor? Why didn't he go to Herod? Why didn't he go to the scribes and Pharisees, those who actually knew the law, these fishermen didn't know the Torah. they didn't study it like, like the scribes and Pharisees did. Why did he choose ordinary people? What does this say? What does this say about the kingdom that Jesus is building? Later he would say the kingdom of God is like a slow-growing mustard seed. It's like a slowly growing cultivated garden. I think what what the important thing for us to remember is that we've received the kingdom from Jesus. And we live as kingdom people in our ordinary callings. Jesus isn't calling us or everybody to be in the church. To be a missionary, to do to do things that are only tied to what Jesus calls people to in the in the church. But he's calling us to live out our ordinary callings to His glory, to His honor, ultimately. I love that the women are reading the book "Ordinary" by Michael Horton. I think that's uh, I was just reading it the past. Uh, few days to uh, study for this and I really like this one quote he he used um, and he gets to this idea of what we do here on Sunday. It's very ordinary. Um, Not much of the world is paying attention to what goes on in the church, right? People aren't people aren't, uh, the news isn't outside trying to get in to to see what's going on in here. But still it is extraordinary in its own right And and Horton says, CNN will not be showing up at the church that is simply trusting God to do extraordinary things through his ordinary means of grace delivered by ordinary servants. But God will. Week after week, these means of grace and the ordinary fellowship of the saints that nurtures and guides us throughout our life may seem frail, but they are jars that carry a rich treasure, Christ with all of his saving benefits. Whatever gifts may spill over into other activities and venues, it is by sharing in the ordinary service of Christ to his people each week that we become heirs of eternal life and draw others into this everlasting kingdom. Christ is the host and the chef. It is his event. He ministered, his ministers are simply waiters delivering to his guests some savory morsels of, of the Lamb's everlasting wedding feast. See, so what we do here every Sunday, it's really a banquet, it's a feast, it's a foretaste of that ultimate heavenly banquet that we're going to enjoy together. Simply as we, as we sing songs together about God's grace, as we read the word and hear it preached. And so what are we to do today in response? Well, it's pretty simple. Follow Jesus. Just like these disciples were called to follow Jesus. And He has called you. And He has called you. In and, and John 6, um, John writes about when, when all the disciples, or a lot of the disciples were starting to leave Jesus because His teaching was hard. He was teaching about Himself being the bread of life, the only way to God. And Jesus said to Peter and the disciples, Will you leave me too? Are you going to walk away as well? Peter said, Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, he knew. He knew that, that Jesus was the place to be. Jesus had the words of eternal life. He was the Savior. And Jesus' word comes to you right now. It comes to you through the word. His word speaks to us even now. Through my weak, stumbling words. Jesus authoritatively calls you to repent, to follow him, and worship him above all else. If you've never placed your faith in Christ today, you can do it now. He still calls you today. This isn't just a history that we read about. It's an active, living word. Because Jesus is still alive. And you know what? The disciples didn't know the full implications of what they were doing when they decided to follow Jesus. They, they had no idea that, that he would go to a cross, that he would die. They had a different image of what the, the, his kingdom should be. So their faith was simple. Their faith was very simple. They just cling to him. They knew that he was the one they should follow. And that's the way it is with all of us ordinary disciples. As one author puts this, This summons to love God and thus to keep his words is not given to supermen. Or super women. The first commandment is for ordinary Israelites and for ordinary disciples of Jesus Christ. The disciples we meet in the New Testament could be dull of understanding, slow of heart. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they could not stay awake even one hour to watch with their master. Peter even denied him. And all of them had trouble accepting the report of Jesus' resurrection. But concerning these people, knowing their weaknesses, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer to the Father, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. At the end of the day, Jesus could still say, they have kept your word. Weak, unbelieving, dozing, and rebellious men were repeatedly restored because the words of God and of Christ had received a permanent place in their heart. They stuck with their choice even though that they were often shaken back and forth by Satan in his sieve and were occasionally ensnared in the nets of idolatry. So I plead with you, hold tight to the word of Christ this morning. Hold tight to his word. Because Jesus' authority is for our good, we can follow and entrust all things to him. And in wrapping up, I want to ask the question, will there be a cost to following Jesus? Will there be a cost? There clearly is a cost. There clearly is a cost to following Jesus. It's in our passage now. What happened when he he called to follow them to follow? What did they do? They had to leave their business. They had to leave everything they knew. John and James had to leave their father, Zebedee. Following Jesus may mean, doesn't always mean this, it may mean we'll have to leave some things behind. Some of those earthly comforts. And where will we get the motivation to do this? Because it it will get very difficult sometimes when we have to leave things behind. We need to remember that Jesus set aside his own glory in heaven for his bride, for us. Going back to Ruth Tucker in, in her book, she contrasts her story uh, with the story of another. She writes When I think of a husband laying aside his glory for his wife, Robertson McQuilkin immediately comes to mind. Most people know him as having served more than two decades as the president of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Much to the chagrin of the university's board of trustees, he quit at the height of his career to become a full-time homemaker. His wife, Muriel, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease by 1981, and by 1990, her condition had deteriorated to the point that she had become agitated and fearful unless he was with her. He had not promised to del- tell death do us part to the university, but to Muriel, he had. So he laid aside his glory as a university president to become a caregiver for Muriel. And five years into his retirement, he reflected on the course their lives had taken. He writes 17 summers ago, Muriel and I began our journey into the twilight. It's midnight now. Yet in her silent world, Muriel is so content, so lovable. If Jesus took her home, how I would miss her gentle, sweet presence. That gentle presence, however, was at times interrupted by frustrations. On one occasion, before Muriel began wearing diapers, she had an accident in the bathroom. And Robertson was trying to clean her up. and She was pushing him away, clumsily trying to take care of herself. He told her to stop. She ignored him. In exasperation, he slapped the calf of her leg. She was startled, he writes. I was too. Never in our 44 years of marriage had I ever so much had touched her in anger. But now when she needed me most, now when she needed me most, the reader can almost hear the choke in his voice. And then Tucker writes, "What an incredible illustration of Christ's love for the church, a husband's unconditional love for, for a wife. It's not a perfect illustration because he's a mere man, and Jesus never sinned. He never struck his bride in frustration. Even in the best examples of sacrificial love that we can offer each other, we fall short. We, We lose patience. We constantly need Christ as our source. His perfect love covers our imperfections. When we needed saving most, when you and I needed saving most, his love and authority would meet on the cross where we receive, where, where he received the penalty for our sin and we received mercy and by trusting in him through faith. Friends, Jesus can be followed because his authority is good. It's a good authority. His love and authority would meet on the cross where he died, where he showed the greatest love ever. In John 10, Jesus sums it up well. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from the Father. See, Jesus would eventually use His own divine authority to lay down His life for the sheep. For his bride, for his rebellious bride, you and me. What love is greater than this? Be amazed today, friends, at this great love and this great authority, this great glory that was laid down at the cross. Jesus is the good husband. He's the good husband who lays down his life for his bride. Which authority will you live under today? The authority of man will only produce fear and enslavement. But the authority of Christ will only produce joy and freedom. The choice is yours. Take Christ today and trust in his good authority. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that your authority is good for us. That you've called your disciples, you've called your church to be a light to that authority. That we can... Commune with our brothers and sisters today and be reminded of that sacrificial life of Jesus that your word has taught us and reminded us of. We thank you so much, Father, that we have this new life. We have this freedom to enjoy you and to worship you, to not be scared, to not be afraid. Father, we long to be with you. We thank you so much that we have this relationship with you. Be with us now, Father, as we continue in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.